The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Adom Getachew. We spoke about her new book, World Making After Empire, The Rise and Fall of Self-Determination, which looks at the liberation struggles of anti-colonial movements in Africa and the Caribbean in the 20th century and the way in which they sought to construct a new global order that might secure real independence in the international system. We spoke about those efforts as well as her characterization of the League of Nations and associated figures such as US President Woodrow Wilson as essentially racist and counter-revolutionary in nature. And we also discussed the way the invasion of Ethiopia by Mussolini's Italy in 1935 was articulated in ways that presage the modern era of humanitarian intervention. You can listen to PTO on iTunes, Acast, SoundCloud, Blueberry and Spotify. And you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle, as always, is at Poll Theory Other. And if you enjoy the show, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. It really does make a big difference in helping the show to reach new listeners. If you would like to, you can also support the show by donating through Patreon. The show really needs listener support if it's to be viable in the long run. You can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a patron, you'll get access to extended versions of PTO episodes. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Adam Getachew is Neubauer Family Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago. She is a political theorist with research interests in the history of political thought, theories of race and empire, and post-colonial political theory. Her work focuses on the intellectual and political histories of Africa and the Caribbean, her recent book, which was the subject of our discussion, World Making After Empire, The Rise and Fall of Self-Determination, reconstructs an account of self-determination offered in the political thought of black Atlantic anti-colonial nationalists during the height of decolonization in the 20th century. Adom holds a joint PhD in political science and African-American studies from Yale University, and you can follow her on Twitter. Her handle is at Adom Given the sort of general situation in the global south in the, the late 20th century and, and the early 21st century, whether we're talking about poverty or, or the existence of authoritarian regimes, it's maybe quite easy to look at anti-colonial projects of the post-war era as being sort of misconceived and in, and in particular that by... Uh, privileging national sovereignty as a way to secure their independence in the world system. Many countries in, in the global south were providing justification for authoritarian rule and for downplaying human rights domestically. But in your book, you're at pains to point out that that's a very one-sided interpretation of, of nationalist anti-colonial movements, which, uh, I mean, as the, as the title of your book points to, they were also engaged in efforts to develop 
supranational institutions that would tilt the balance of power away from the first world by what you you call world making. Um, could you talk a little bit about that term and and how you use it in the book? So you know um, you're absolutely right that the the main effort of the book is to try to tell a different kind of story about um, our post-colonial present and to try and make this argument that the ways we got to um, these forms of kind of, the kind of failures of post-colonial politics, the failures of the post-colonial state might not be a kind of, we might not be able to tell a straightforward story about the congenital defects of anti-colonial nationalism that gave rise to these failures. Um, so, so that, and I think there's a lot of different ways one can you know, cash out that claim. But the way I try to do it in the book is, as you say, to try and recover a, a more um, the kind of global imagination of what decolonization was. And so the the frame of the book is around, you know, we, we kind of have the story about decolonization that emphasizes the transition from empire to nation. And then as a result, that casts... Um, nationalists as really, you know, as nation builders, right, that their primary projects are concerned with the domestic sphere. And so I make the argument I make in the book is that for all of these thinkers, um, in part because they had a critique of empire that wasn't only focused on bilateral relations of domination, so they weren't just concerned with um, alien rule, uh, the fact that Britain ruled Ghana or Jamaica, but that they they were very attentive to the kind of international background conditions that that helped to facilitate these forms of domination, right? So they understood colonial rule itself to be part and parcel of a broader structure of international hierarchy. And this this argument made it difficult for them, I think, to imagine that decolonization could could be limited and achievable in an only in a domestic context, right? So um, their anxiety was that you could be free of, of alien rule, and exemplary in this case would be Haiti, Liberia, Ethiopia, which were free, independent members of, of kind of international organizations like the League of Nations, but in, in, in the interwar period, subject to various forms of domination. And so you needed to have a, an imagination of what, what kind of international order would be necessary to achieve something like national independence. So for me, world making is a way of thinking about the international corollary to domestic projects of nation building, and that we—it's an argument for thinking about the ways in which um, national projects, um, even the most—and this is a broader claim I want to make—that even the most uh, autarkic, uh, insular forms of nationalism have to imagine themselves in relationship to a other, in relationship to a wider world. So they have to have some story they tell about what the precise external conditions would be for realizing their, their domestic projects. Um, in this, in the particular, in the case of the anti-colonial nationalists, I look at because of this diagnosis of international hierarchy and relations of dependence and, and domination that you couldn't fully, they had to that, that vision of international hierarchy resulted in two kinds of conclusions. One, strikingly, a lot of these thinkers don't think you can simply exit or escape 
um, the international sphere, right? There, that, that imagination of autarky actually is a quite um, unrealizable in, in for, for a variety of reasons for these thinkers. So instead of imagining exit or insularity, what they, what they try to think about is how might these relations of domination be transformed into ones of equality, ones of interdependence that actually facilitate um, independent, national independence in the post-colonial world. And I mean, that view of, of, of the international system as being characterized by hierarchy and relations of hegemony and, and dependency, was, was that interpretation across the board in terms of these thinkers or, or, or were there people who took a, had a more sort of perhaps naive view of, of the international system and believed that merely realizing formal independence would be enough to achieve equality in the international system? So I would say that I think that the diagnosis of international hierarchy is a kind of it is something that recurs in a variety of anti-colonial thinkers. So my book is really focused on primarily African and Caribbean thinkers. Uh, so Kwame Nkrumah, Julius Nerere, Michael Manley, Eric Williams, George Padmore. Those are the figures of the book. Um, but I think, you know, I would think like if you say read Nehru, um, you know, um, Indian nationalist, I think you find a similar sort of story there about this question of hierarchy and forms of dependence. Now, I think what makes the set of figures I'm looking at maybe give a, they have a distinctive accent on this, on this account of hierarchy is that their kind of position within what I call the Black Atlantic, borrowing from Paul Gilroy, um, they trace the this kind of condition of hierarchy to what they take to be in the originary moment of the modern world. And for them, that that is indelibly about the transatlantic slave trade and new world slavery. So their story about the emergence of the modern world and the emergence of a kind of modern, you know, commercial relations really centers from the very beginning forms of racial domination and hierarchy um, and understands that to be the kind of moment in which race uh, gets made and and so and and that kind of relations of inequality are engendered into the international sphere so they have this long durée view of of kind of of processes of unequal integration and there's this accent on an emphasis on the role of race and in, in these structures of racial hierarchy that makes it slightly distinctive i think from um you know, parallel narratives um, in South Asia or or Latin American theorists of dependency, for instance. Is there also, therefore, a recognition that the the path of development that, say, Britain or, or the United States took isn't necessarily open to the global South because the development of those nations themselves they depended on having this external periphery that they could that they could exploit in various ways. I think here we, we kind of stumble upon one of the real tensions and contradictions in the thought of the thinkers I'm looking at. So, you know, um, and I think I really hone in on this in the chapter on the new international economic order. But if you read someone like Kwame Nkrumah, for instance, he does have this kind of story, as I've been saying, of, of how these forms of the kind of exploitation and domination of the colony 
gave rise to, uh, you know, to industrialization in, in the North Atlantic, right? So there is this story about how Europe's economic and political modernity depended in part, in part and and constitutively on these forms of uh, generating forms of dependence and domination in the post-colonial world. But what's striking about um, anti-colonial, I think Nkrumah and others make this move, Eric Williams might be another one, they still imagine in some sense that uh, industrialization on the, like, that there is a kind of universal and replicable process of development, right? So for Nkrumah, the post-colonial state, an activist post-colonial state, especially one organized at the level of the region um, through a, con- a pan-African federation, could be able to restructure and reorient um, the economy in such a way that something like industrialization is is actually a possible trajectory for um and so it's really striking. Again, I think there, an unresolved tension in his writing. On the one hand, this kind of language of dependence, um, uh, and on the other, um, you know, he cites, say, uh, uh, Rostow's uh, theory of, you know, stages of economic growth, a kind of key text of modernization theory in the period. Um, his first economic advisor is the St. Lucian economist and, and uh, Nobel laureate uh, Arthur Lewis, a uh, you know real development economist who who kind of reg- I, he ex- would explicitly reject the development or dependency theory model. So I think you know that is an unresolved tension, especially I think in in what we might call the first generation of anti-colonial nationalists and Krumo Williams might be. Um, those are the kind of central figures for me in the book. Uh, that represent that phase, and then I think the 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 limits and failures of the developmental project in the first say decade and a half of um, de- independence really brings to crisis whether this this kind of story about development as a replicable process is possible, um, and so. For, say, someone like uh, Julius Nereri of, of Tanzania would very much write against this model, the Nkrumahist model of, of industrialization, right? And make an argument for not just that the, like, um, history of dependence makes this trajectory impossible, but also that industrialization itself might um, generate forms of inequality that that within the country that kind of you know, um, inequalities between, say, urban, rural, um, and deepen and exacerbate those in ways that undermine the trajectory of kind of post-colonial egalitarianism. So I think that you see different people taking this theory of dependence in very different ways um, through Nkrumah and Nerere. Um, I, I suppose the difficulty in this area is that, you know, we never saw a Pan-African Union or, or, or something like this. And so we can't properly know what would have happened in that circumstance. I mean, I wonder if perhaps to some extent the example of the Soviet Union was significant here in sort of, um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a large territory um, after the Second World War. It's, it's part of a broader communist world. And I wonder if that encouraged a belief that you could, um, through a system of, of federation where you're a larger territory, you've got economies of scale and all that sort of thing, that that can make it more plausible as a, as a strategy. 
Yes. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, in some ways, this book is a, a book of uh, counterfactuals, unrealized experiments. And I think what uh, what I, you know, want the book to do is in some ways uh, shed light on particular ways of thinking and ways of posing posing the problem of international politics. Um, and we can get to why I think re returning to the ways, the questions people asked in this particular period might be important for our own. But I do think that, yes, they're in, the, in this moment of the 50s and 60s, they're drawing on a variety of kind of ideas about development and industrialization, including the Soviet Union. So Nkrumah would famously say in, in these debates about like what form the Pan-African Federation should take and why there needed to be a kind of strong federal state at the center, he would say like, you know, even though everyone thinks that economic planning is a kind of communist project, like every state is involved in every state on the on both sides of the Cold War divide is are really using state power to shape and transform the economy. And so, of course, he's thinking here of the New Deal in the United States as a as a one particular kind of model. And we kind of might think of something like the Tennessee Valley authorities, you know, in the kind of projects of industrialization he's thinking about. So for him, both of these are examples of how um, larger economies with strong states um, and, of course, various levels of in intervention, but how states can use um, their authority to transform economic relations. And so there is a real kind of um, modernist faith in the state um, as an agent of transformation. Um, and both the Soviet Union and the United States are figuring very centrally in that in, in that imagination. Um, but the genealogy I trace in the book is one that really looks at how both Eric Williams and Nkrumah are reading the um, American Federalists in a very surprising turn as their kind of model for a federal project. I mean, in terms of that, so from their perspective, the United States represents a successful post-colonial society that is broken free of the United Kingdom. And not only is it politically independent, but it is no longer economically subordinate. And they trace some of the economic problems of the United States to that dependency on on, on, on Britain and that independence re resolved those problems. Um, but I mean, you also talk in the book how about how it's it's a pretty strange example for them to be drawing upon, given that their depiction of the international system is 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 one in which they they use the language of of slavery and and domination, and obviously they were very aware of of what the United States was. Yeah, it, it was one of the most uncomfortable findings. I you know stumbled upon this in uh, first in. Um, in Eric Williams's papers at the University of West Indies um, in Saint Augustine, Trinidad, and and when I first came across one or two mentions, I sort of was like, oh, maybe this is just one of a variety of kind of examples, right? And then and then it reappears quite a bit in his work, and then I was it was sort of. I was struck by its return when I was in Accra in the National Archives there, so. I mean, I think we should think about this appeal to the United States. Yes, it's it's really contradictory. I mean, what does it mean to say the United States is the model when, 
you know, the United States is an empire and you have this critique of, of slavery and racial hierarchy as the kind of structure of the world. Um, so I kind of read the example as having, it has a kind of, it's, it serves two purposes. One, it makes the limits of post-colonial independence not specific to, um, not specific to say the, the you know decolonizing world in um, in the 20th century. That is to say, it treats the kind of problems, the political and economic crises of, of, of post-colonial societies, not in terms of cultural or sociological or institutional deficits of these particular societies. And you already see in the 1960s an argument that these societies say um, came to the nation state too early, were ill-prepared to make independence works and so forth, right? So rather than imagining, um, it's in kind of a very strategically really important, I think, rather than imagining that there's something intrinsic in these societies that makes post-colonial independence particularly impossible, they make the appeal to the United States helps them tell an institutional story, right? Um, and the institutional story is one in which they can say the reason for American success is not because, as Woodrow Wilson say, would say that Americans have a kind of distinctive capacity for freedom, right? An Anglo, Anglo-Saxon inheritance, but that they, have, they were successful in um, creating the appropriate institutional form for independence, right? And so it's about building institutions. And, and so that means that the post-colonial world in the 20th century could be similarly successful if they managed to configure institutions appropriately, right? So there's an institutionalist imaginary here. Um, the second, I think, um, and you do see this, the second rhetorical uh, project here is a way of kind of, you know, the United States is, is the dominant or increasingly the dominant uh, power in the moment of their writing. Um, and I think there's a way in which strategically kind of calling, recalling an anti-imperial American past was rhetorically useful in this context to kind of critique American power and American hegemony in the 20th century. So it is, it's a way of kind of trying to at least uh, persuade the United States that it too has this anti-imperial history and, and um, might be persuaded to take the side, say, of the post-colonial world, or or might be more persuaded by the claims of post-colonial states. I'll say so. One mm-hmm. concrete version of this is that um, in Trinidad, where Williams is writing from, for instance, um, there was all a kind of a really important uh, base, uh, American base at Chagaramas, uh, which the United States received. Um, through the Lend-Lease program with Britain uh, while, while, while Trinidad was still a colony. And, you know, in the same period that uh, Williams is making us, you know, all these appeals to the American Federation as the model for West Indian Federation, he's um, simultaneously engaged in this battle about getting the United States base off of, or military presence off of the island. Um, And so we might think about these appeals to 
American anti-imperialism do also playing a role in this kind of concrete battle about the military presence on the island. Um, so I think that those are the kind of possibilities, both political and theoretical, that the appeal to the United States um, makes possible. I do think obviously it has a variety of limits, the example. And I think one of the things that should alert us to is the ways in which um, the circulation of ideas um, travels in particular kinds of imperial networks. Um, so, you know, over the last decade or so, there's been so much interest in the global history of ideas, the globalization of ideas, especially of universal ideals like human rights um, in particular. And I think what the story reveals is that actually ideas might travel in in particular in circumscribed networks, right? And that imperial linguistic networks, um, the Anglosphere is the is the kind of context in which these figures are writing. So the kind of terms of de the debate or the set of ideas they may draw on are already kind of they operate in a particular kind of network and, and context that um, makes available certain kinds of, you know, resources, certain kinds of examples, but might disable others, right? So we should think about the circulation of ideas, I think, as kind of uh, working through particular kinds of networks and spaces. That point on the sort of the, the kind of double move of invoking American liberal ideology at the same time as trying to sort of take on American global hegemony. I mean, it makes me think of, of, of Vietnam because you see a similar double move there as well, don't you? Where Ho Chi Minh sort of appealing to the American constitution and at the same time defying American imperialism. But it, it, it seems like that uh, appeal never goes very well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, that's right. I mean, um, I think that's, you know, true um, that the appeal mostly, you know, largely fails. But I think it's really interesting, say, like the moments where the U.S. feels like it has to concede something, say the early part of the NIO where there was some and this isn't about the, you know, it's that the rhetorical deployment is coupled with some bargaining power, right? What the OPEC um, strike makes possible is a kind of, is help to shore up the bargaining power of the post-colonial world. And what happens when that kind of bargaining power does begin to collapse under the weight of the of the of the debt crisis of the um, you know later period so I think it's true that you know it's not just rhetorical appeal on its own but a way in which I mean for a variety of reasons the I think the Cold War context the sense of having to um, at least uh, appease uh, the third world in an effort to contain the communist bloc, uh, the power of, of collectively of third world states, it did have some sort of um, create some sort of pressures on the United States, um, I think. And, and part of what happens is like why and how that those set, sets of pressures, the loosening of those pressures generates a form of American hegemony beginning, I think, in the 70s, but really, of course, after the Cold War ends, that looks quite different than the form it existed in in the early, you know, post-war period. So I think there's, I guess that's a warning about thinking less in terms of the inevitability of 
of American power in the form that it exists and to try and think about what are the mechanisms to tell a more contingent story about the rise of a particular form of American imperialism. And and I think why that's important is that, I mean, part of the reason to, t- to write this book about the, the kind of winding trajectories, the not straightforward ways we got to the place we got, is to really open up conceptual and political space to think otherwise. And so I think our, our ability to do that depends on also imagining that the forces we're up against might not always be as impossible as they appear. Um, you've already uh, mentioned Woodrow Wilson, who, who obviously you know remains in in some circles a sort of a, a hero of of liberal internationalism and and is viewed as a defender of of self determination in the in the early twentieth century. And you know he's someone who sort of fits in with that kind of very neat story that you describe, whereby decolonization is almost preordained by a, a supposed benign liberal character of of at least Western imperialism. I mean, it's perhaps not, um, it, it wouldn't necessarily be be extended to um, German imperialism, say, or, or Italian imperialism. Um, but there is that, nonetheless, that belief that, um, that the seeds of uh, decolonization exist within the imperial project itself. Um, c- could you talk a bit about that and what your view is of Wilson generally, who's, you know, he's often very favorably compared to British and French uh, statesmen of the period who were sort of depicted as much more unapologetic advocates of empire? Yeah, the first chapter really tries to rethink the standard story of, of self-determination's origins in Wilson's project of liberal internationalism of, you know, of the post-World War One period. And I mean, I think my argument there is, one, I, I want to make a kind of conceptual point about how we shouldn't think that um, ideals like self-determination already already contain their meanings um, internal to them. And so it's just about uh, kind of expanding or universalizing what's already internal to them. And so that allows us to think if if they're not like if they don't come with their meaning internal to them, but the me- their meaning is actually produced in the kind of in the ways in which the ideals are mobilized. Um, I think it provides room and space to think about how certain deployments of self-determination have different kinds of uh, effects in the world and different imaginations of, of the international order. So for me, Wilson is. Um, you know, I, I I characterize the League of Nations moment as really a kind of counter counter revolutionary project, both thinking about the Russian Revolution and the, the and communist international that comes out of that project as one kind of threat that has to be contained, and then thinking about the early incipient forms of anti-colonialism that also have to be contained. So for me, um, what I trace in that first chapter is is how Wilson, um, I mean, who? it should be noted that Wilson himself uses the term self-determination very few times and very late in in the in the course of the post uh, debates about the post-war settlement i think i may be misremembering but i think the first use comes in february 1918 so very late um and there's of course before that a long-standing um set of debates in socialist circles um about what self-determination might mean. There's Lenin's writings of 1915 and 
self-esteem. So there is a, another tradition of self-determination. Um, but of course, Wilson becomes so deeply associated with the League of Nations moment. And there, I think what I tried to make, say is that we should think about him as a figure that's already developed domestically vis-a-vis um, -vis Af African-Americans and in relation to America's expanding territorial empire um, in the Philippines and elsewhere. He's already developed an, uh, an anti-revolutionary conception of what self-determination or self-government might mean, right? Um, so against, say, in his writings, for instance, about reconstruction in the United States after the Civil War, um, in his writings on the Philippines and the War of Independence in, in the early 20th century, he's already decided that there's a way in which um, self-determination or self-government, the term he's more, more likely to use, ought to be understood as requiring a certain kind of developmental project, right? So on the one hand, he's, he's, he has a kind of... Um, we might read him as a certain kind of liberal, a liberal imperialist of the say of an earlier moment that believes that you know the self, the collective self of self determination or self rule has to undergo this process of tutelage of development under imperial power. There's that version of him, and then I think there's an actually more even uh, just a more straightforwardly racist kind of argument he makes that. Um, kind of sits in parallel with this with this argument, which is that which suggests that in certain places and in certain contexts, that self of self-determination may never actually reach political maturity and be able to exercise self-rule. And so he has a few suggestions vis-a-vis -vis the Philippines that it may be because of its kind of ethnic composition. Uh, in particular, not capable of the kind of self-government we associate with, um, you know, national independence. So he sits uneasily, I think, between these two models. And I and I read him alongside um, Jan Smuts of South Africa as a way of really pulling out this kind of counter-revolutionary and racialized imagination of what self-determination is. Um, I think it's important to recover that part of of the history because one it's I think it's important to to imagine how like the kind of crises we get to in the interwar period especially um with the invasion of the Italian invasion of Ethiopia aren't just like they're not aberrational right they're not indications of a system gone wrong or a failure to realize Wilsonian ideals, but they are the kind of, um, actually the realization, the coming to fruition of, of the racialized international order that uh, Wilson helped to reinstitutionalize after, after World War II. I think this also then sets up like the, the real moment of a, a universal account of self-determination of, of self, of self as an anti-colonial project can't be located in the Wilsonian moment, but really must be thought of as a post-World War II project of anti-colonial nationalists who would take up the terms of, who would take up the language of self-determination, but really try to um, disentangle it from its 
hierarchical and racialized um, conceptions. Um, I mean, just on the the example of the Italian invasion of, of Ethiopia. So, I mean, in sort of the standard history of that moment, I mean, the actions of the fascist Italian government are depicted as uh, contrary to the the international norms that the League of Nations are seeking to enshrine. But and, and I, you know, I thought this was, was a particularly interesting part of the book. I mean, you you describe how. Not only were the actions of the Italians entirely consistent with those norms, but that the justification of the invasion was articulated precisely in those terms and the ways in which Ethiopia was alleged to be failing to uh, live up to its international obligations. Could, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, the argument of, the, of that part of the book is that, you know, it's trying to make sense of a particular story of of decolonization as a gradual expansion of international society, right? So in that account by Headley Bull and others, the League the League of Nations represents a partial expansion, right? Because this is a moment where you do have a kind of, you have Ethiopia's granted membership, Liberia, Haiti, There, there's all these small states of the global south, what we would call the global south now, represented in the league. And so we, on its face, we might look at that and say, great, there's this gradual incorporation and inclusion of different kinds of states. Um, But what I try to trace out is like, ask this question about what actually were the terms of inclusion, right? And when we look at the terms of inclusion for, in this case, for Liberia and Ethiopia, what we find is that embedded into those very terms are a set of standards, uh, ways of thinking about what inclusion requires of these states that creates what I call a burdened form of membership. Um, so the process of inclusion is actually a process of unequal integration. And burdened membership creates more, it generates greater obligations and limits the set of rights that states have or makes those limited rights um, you know, uh, conditional on what are actually more expansive set of uh, obligations than other states would have. So in the case of Ethiopia and Liberia, much of the obligations would revolve around a kind of the crisis of slavery, um, which in this period is just associated, largely associated with Ethiopia and Liberia, which also happen to be the two parts of the African continent, not under European rule in this period. Um, So from 19... 23, when Ethiopia gains membership to 1935, the League of Nations archives are just full of officials from the Permanent Mandates Commission, the Slavery Commission that's created, you know, um, really anxious about Ethiopian membership and constantly preoccupied with this question of whether, in fact, they deserve membership, given that they're failing to meet up to the standards of abolishing slavery in, the, in their territory. When we get to the the Italian invasion of 1935, um, as I show before, you know, one month before the invasion actually begins, the Italian government produces a 60-page memorandum detailing what they take to be all of Ethiopia's failures to um, meet up to their sta- the standards of membership outlined in the um outlined as the terms of membership for Ethiopia. And then so they represent their own actions as a kind of realization of the League's project, Um, uh, you know, portray what they're up to as what we would now call humanitarian intervention, right? Um, And so um, 
I think it's really it's it's important to read so so this kind of disrupts the standard narrative which treats Italy as the rogue state right um, and then understands the league's failure to respond adequately to the intervention or the invasion as having not had the right institutional mechanism for executive action right that and so this this problem is what you know, critics have said, led to the kind of development of a stronger Security Council when we get to the UN model. But but I think reading the, you know, reading the intervention and the failure of League action as kind of stemming from the League's own incorporation, the terms of incorporation of, of states like Ethiopia, allows us to really see the ways in which international law has facilitated uh, forms of racial hierarchy and unequal integration um, and sees, sees these processes not as aberrational, but really as the kind of most um, routine and regular versions of, of how international society was organized. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.